Um, our scripture reader today is uh, Carol Hoig, and um, if she would come, and if you would stand again as our scripture is read um, in honor of God's word, uh, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Listen as I read. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, a couple, couple uh, cringe moments in, in, those, uh, in those verses. Uh, maybe maybe you, you felt that. It's, uh, this is a heavy, a heavy passage. Uh, if you've been around, uh, we are working through um, these short little letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches, seven, seven uh, real churches that existed in the first century. And Jesus uh, points, to, uh, points to these seven. And uh, John, the author of Revelation, of this book, Revelation, uh, authors these little letters that Jesus uh, sends uh, to, the, to these seven real churches. Uh, but we also recognize that the book of Revelation is packed full of imagery, and these images are often figurative. And so while we have seven real churches, there's also a sense in which these churches represent the church, Jesus' church, not just in the first century, but Jesus' church in all time. And a few different times through this series, I've invited you to consider the fact that maybe there's a way in which you should take all seven churches, the number seven is the number of wholeness or completeness, Maybe there's a sense in which what Jesus intends is that the number seven means something. And what he's saying is if you put all seven of these letters together, that this is the whole church. That this, this, is, this is what I want my church to do. This is what I want my church to be aware of. These are the potential downfalls, the temptations, the errors that sit in front of the people of God. And so today we work through the fourth uh, of the seven churches, the church in Thyatira. Um, so church in Thyatira, every week we've spent just a minute asking, uh, what do we know about the city uh, that these churches are found in? Well, the city of Thyatira was not a notable city. 
Uh, it's a city, so I mean, obviously, it had some level of uh, population. It was it was uh, significant enough to be known as a city, but it, it didn't have anything going for it. Um, so it, it had um, the, the first three churches that we looked at: Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. All of them had things about them that were significant, that had uh, inherent value. You know, last week we actually said that you could take Pergamum and think about it maybe as taking Washington D.C. and New York City and like pushing them together, uh, kind of the dynamics at play uh, in in that city. So, so significant cities. Uh, Thyatira wasn't known like that. What what it did have uh, was trade guilds. Uh, it, 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 that produced metals and, and textiles. And being part of these trade guilds uh, brought significant perks. So you could think of maybe a more significant version of what we think of today as, as unions. And so um, I don't mean to be demeaning to any city, but th- this might be a little bit more like, uh, like a, a Detroit or a Cleveland where it's a little bit more of a, of a blue-collar, uh, kind of like Pittsburgh, uh, the, you know, a steel mill. Uh, there, you know, if you, you, especially in generations past, you know, I grew up not far from Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, I mean, steel was the industry, and the steel union was a big deal. And being part of the steel union was a significant way to protect your job and to ensure uh, honest or at least decent wages. And so Thyatira is going to have more of those kinds of dynamics uh, at, at play. And so there's these guilds, they produce a lot of metals, a lot of textiles, um, and being part of the guilds is a good thing, and yet it's, it's likely that being a member of one of these guilds would require various commitments uh, and allegiances that, that maybe a Christian would have a hard time in good conscience to, to, to make. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's uh, it, it, again, what we just said a moment ago, like if you think of a union in our culture, but then add to it the, the nature of the culture that existed in that part of the world in the first century and the potential compromises that a Christian might feel like they had to make if they were going to be part of the guild. And maybe you're in a career field where you feel like that's something that's on the plate before you all the time, is that to make it in this career field, you got to cut corners, uh, spiritually speaking, to make it in this career field, you've, you've got to do what everybody else does. You, you've, you've got to make some compromises that, 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 as a Christian, you can't make in good conscience. Uh, that very well could be a dynamic that the church at Thyatira was facing. And if it was the case, uh, they would have felt the financial realities of that. If they would have said no to these guilds, if they would have said no, we, we can't make those kind of compromises as we follow Jesus, that there would have been consequences for it. There's not a lot of detail uh, on, on that fact, but the city was known for having significant trade guilds that produced metal and textiles. Uh, but this church caught Jesus' attention. So whether it was a blue-collar steel town or what, it, it caught Jesus' attention. And he writes them uh, a letter. And uh, every letter that Jesus writes to these churches, he starts off with a brief description of himself. And he reaches back into chapter 1 when we learn who the author of these letters is. We learn that it's Jesus who has authored these letters. He reaches back into chapter 1 and he pulls a little bit of the description about himself. And he says, this part of my description I want to be front-facing when I talk to this specific church. And so this time, in verse 18, Jesus is the one. He, this, this is how he wants to describe himself. Jesus as the Son of God who has eyes like flame fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
So this is setting Jesus up as both an authority and as beautiful. Jesus is presenting himself as one who is royalty, the son of God, one who is holy, eyes like a flame, and one who is superior. Multiple commentators note that this idea of Jesus referencing burnished bronze is somewhat of an indication that the primary metal appears to have been brass, that uh, Thyatira was known for making brass. And bronze is a, is a notable step up from brass. And so there's this sense with, with, when Jesus refers to his, his feet as burnished bronze, he's probably referring back to a passage in Daniel, but he's also comparing himself to what Thyatira offers. And he's saying, like, I, like I'm, I'm, I'm better than, than that. I, I'm better than, than, the, than what your city can offer you. Uh, this letter is the longest letter of the seven, and it's probably the most confusing, as you heard just a second ago. Um, interestingly, it has a lot of similarities with the previous letter. So if you were here last Sunday, when we looked at this, uh, the church in Pergamum, uh, you, you know, I could probably preach almost the same sermon. We, we, could, we could chase kind of the exact same themes uh, that Jesus was pushing on with the church at Pergamum, um, but there, there are some components that are different, and so we will try to, draw, to draw, draw those out. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to say to this church. He uh, offers an evaluation, which he does with, with most of the, the letters that he writes in this section. And he offers a commendation, wants to pat them on the back, wants to encourage them. And as we've said week after week, it is such a beautiful reality that Jesus encourages his people that Jesus pauses to look at them, to see them, to know their situations, and then to celebrate the things in their life, uh, the things that are happening within their congregation that are, that are noteworthy, that are, that are celebratory. And Jesus doesn't pause. He doesn't, he's not afraid to celebrate the good, even though he may very well have a critique coming on the back of it. So the commendation to the church at Thyatira is he, he, he points to their love, their faith, their service, and their patient endurance. Do you notice that there in, in, in verse 19? He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And if you uh, have been around or you read chapter 2, those, those words are not, they're not new in Jesus' letters. This idea, he says, you know, patient endurance, well, he celebrated that in the church at Ephesus. He says he celebrates their love. Well, guess what? The church at Ephesus had lost their love. It says he celebrates uh, their faith. And it's like uh, Pergamum. He said he, he gave Pergamum a thumbs up about their faith. And then he says they have a heart of service. And so Jesus looks at this church in Thyatira, and he's looking through a similar lens. He's evaluating it in a similar way. And he's like, yeah, the love that Ephesus lost, you, you have it. And the faith that Ephesus had, you have that too. And that patient endurance, it, this, this, is a, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And then there's that, that word, exceed. He, he not only lists out these things in verse 19, but he ends verse 19 by saying, and that your latter works exceed the first. You know what that means? It means that their trajectory is in the right direction. The church at Ephesus had, had stagnated, had cooled, had maybe started to decline, Smyrna was a very small church, struggling. 
And yet he looks at the church at Thyatira and he says, you're going the right direction. You're, you're, you're exceeding. You're growing. Your, 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 your later works, the works that you're doing now, are better than they were at first. When he looked at the church at Ephesus, he said, I want you to return to how you were at the beginning because that was better. Jesus looks at the church at Thyatira and he says, it's, it's going better now. For, for most of you, this, this, is, this is going in the right direction. There, there's a lot to be thankful for. Not only do they have a good resume, but the, the trajectory is good. They're getting better. They're getting stronger. They're growing. Just as God has designed for his people, a life of growing more like Jesus. That seems to be something that is there. It's some level of significance to where Jesus points it out and says, love, faith, service, patient endurance, and it's all, they're exceeding. They're, they're growing. They're, they're improving. That's the commendation, and that is a good word. But then Jesus says there is something that, that's not right. And Jesus moves to his confrontation. And you see that the commendation was just verse 19. The confrontation is, is, is several verses. It's really verse 20 through verse 23. And you could, you could summarize it uh, with the phrase that you tolerate the teachings of Jezebel. Now, uh, you, you heard all these verses read and they are, they are complicated, and they are heavy. Uh, verses 20 through 23, they, they, are, they are no joke. Uh, there is a lot of Old Testament imagery. Uh, if you're familiar with the book of, of Revelation or you were here for week one, uh, you know, we, we reference the idea that in, in the book of Revelation, there are, uh, there are about 400 verses, and there's more than 400 Old Testament references or allusions. And so there's more than one per verse. In the, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is always reaching back to the Old Testament to help us understand what God's doing in the world. And as you read through these verses, this is a great example of Jesus doing that. There are multiple ways in which Jesus wants us to think about these, this critique, this confrontation in light of the Old Testament. So I'll try to, uh, you know, it, it, it'd be very difficult to, to uh, try to explain every one of these phrases, but let me try to give you the sense of what I think Jesus is, is critiquing. Uh, John Stott, uh, he suggests that if the church in Thyatira was a garden, it would be a beautiful garden that, that is growing, but th there's a poisonous weed in the mix. And if unaddressed, this poisonous weed would, wreck, uh, would wreak havoc on the whole church. And what is the poisonous weed? Well, he points to this, this, this he uses this word, Jezebel. He says, there's, there's, Jezebel is, is in your church, and they're teaching and seducing God's people. And you see, it's, 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 it's quite dramatic language. He says that you, verse 20, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Who is Jezebel? What, what is going on? This seems pretty intense. And then you go in verses 21 through 23, and it's like the consequences for Jezebel are like really, really significant. So what's going on? Well, well Jezebel is a reference to idolatry. It's possible that Jezebel is a real person. Um, you know, we, we said Revelation is full of imagery. So it's very possible that Jezebel is a real person. But Jezebel is most likely being used 
just like Balaam was used in the previous letter, an Old Testament illustration of a current situation. I don't have time to go all the way back into Balaam, but if you were here last week, the letter to Pergamum references this idea that they have Balaam in their midst. And you say, well, who's Balaam? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, you go back to Numbers 22 through 24, you learn about this prophet named Balaam who was, uh, who was wooed by the money that the king was offering, and he comes up with a plan to derail the people of God, to compromise the faith of the people of God. And as Jesus talks to the church in Pergamum, he says, you've got Balaam in your midst. In other words, this Old Testament, this Old Testament character, what he did to the people of Israel, you've got somebody in your midst who's doing that to you. And it's very likely that while there may be a person who is Jezebel, maybe, her, maybe it was a she, and maybe it was a, that her name was Jezebel, maybe. But the point for sure is that somebody in their midst is doing in the real time what the Old Testament figure Jezebel did in the Old Testament. Now you got a good question. Who is Jezebel? What, 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 is, what is that about? What, what did she do? Well, Jezebel, you meet her in 1 Kings chapter 16, and you meet her when she marries a king of Israel named King Ahab. And you find out right away that she is not a Jewish, she's not, she's not from the nation of Israel. She is, she is a foreigner who worships foreign gods. It appears that her father was some sort of a, of a priest of a false god, of a foreign god. And so she comes in and she marries the king of Israel. And over the course of Jezebel's life, she has a terrible, terrible track record. Uh, the evidence through, the, through the, those, those chapters, 1 Kings 16 through 22, uh, you, you see that she worshipped foreign gods. Uh, she was vicious. She was manipulative. Uh, at one point in time, her husband, King Ahab, uh, wants a vineyard. He can't get the vineyard. And she basically says, what is wrong with you? You're the king. You get whatever you want. And so she goes about orchestrating a murder so that she gets her husband the vineyard that her husband wants. And so she, she has this sense of, of power and entitlement, manipulation to get what she wants. She killed many prophets of God. She threatened to kill the prophet Elijah. Suffice it to say, you, you can go read about her. It, it, it was a really bad window of time. And Ahab is a, a, a wimp. Ahab is a wuss. Ahab, just, he, he, he folds all the time, just about him, like him pouting about not getting his vineyard. Like that's, a, that's a snapshot of who he was as a king. He was, he was a weak king. He was a bad king. And his, his wife, Jezebel, uh, took advantage of that in some ways. And during his reign, uh, wickedness filled the nation of Israel. As you come to chapter 21 of 1 Kings, uh, Ahab actually does realize the wickedness that has been on display during his time. And he has some level of repentance. And then he dies in chapter 22. Now, there's no evidence that Jezebel ever repented. In fact, uh, when you read about her death in 2 Kings, um, what you realize, at least it appears to be, that she knew she was going to die. And so in the, in the preparation for her death, she actually dressed up like one of Baal's wives. And Baal was, was a, a, a false god that um, the, the nations around Israel worshipped. And so as she's facing her death, it appears that she dresses up as one of Baal's wives. 
And so even to her dying breath, even to her last moment, she seems to be far more committed to the foreign gods than to the God of Israel. And so for all of her wickedness, do you want to know what her lasting legacy was? You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 9. This is where it's inferred. Her lasting legacy is that she institutionalized idolatry in Israel. This is, this is uh, uh, in 1 Kings 21 verse 25. It says this. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably uh, in going after idols. And so he, he, just, he, he failed as a king, but uh, 1 Kings 21 says his wife incited him. She, she, was, she, was, the, she was the puppet master here. And her, her, her trajectory, her legacy was that she institutionalized idolatry in Israel. That actually helps us understand verses 21 through 23. Maybe you felt yourself a little uncomfortable with these kinds of words. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. These seem so severe, and they are severe. But if you go back and you read what the consequences were for Ahab and Jezebel and what they introduced to the people of Israel, the way in which they institutionalized idolatry, the consequences for their actions were that their line was completely wiped out. That none of Ahab's uh, children or any of his lineage survived. And so as Jesus is talking about the situation in Thyatira, he's reaching back to the situation with Jezebel and saying, just like that, that the consequences for this kind of idolatry, the consequences for this kind of rejection of God's good way bring with it incredible consequences. And so is this false teacher a woman? We're not 100% sure. Is her name Jezebel? We're not 100% sure. But someone was in that church. And someone was teaching these kinds of things that were institutionalizing idolatry. Jesus is telling his church that what these false teachers are modeling to them is akin to what Jezebel did to Ahab and to the whole nation of Israel. He's saying, watch out. But Jesus wants to make it clear. The church in Thyatira may have been involved in actual sexual activity. There's multiple times in the passage where sexual immorality is referenced, and it might be overt sexual activity, sexual immorality. It, 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 it probably is, based on the region uh, in which their church was in, based on the culture in which their church was in. It's, it's likely that there was actual sexual activity. But I don't want you to miss this. Th throughout the Bible, God describes his people's idolatry as adultery. If you were to read through the Old Testament, prophet after prophet refers to God's people as committing adultery against him when they practice idolatry, when they worship a false god. There's a, there's a whole book of the Bible that tells of a prophet who is called to, to, to marry a prostitute. And as this prostitute keeps running away and going back to her old ways, this prophet is supposed to keep going and getting her and welcoming her back. Even though she's committing adultery time and time again, he's supposed to go get her and to bring her back. And we find out that that is a snapshot of God with his people 
that his people keep running away and committing spiritual adultery. That their, their, spiritual, their, their idolatry is considered spiritual adultery. And Jesus wants this church to taste it like that, to see it like that. When you run after these other things, it's like you're committing adultery against the God of heaven. And just like marital adultery, spiritual adultery cheapens one's relationship. And so spiritual adultery cheapens our relationship with God. They are giving themselves to someone else. They're giving themselves to something else. And Jesus is saying, don't do it. It's being put in front of you. These false teachers are offering it to you just like it was offered in the Old Testament. Run from it. Run from it. There's so many good things happening in your congregation. But some of you are falling for this. Some of you are being wooed. Some of you are being seduced. That's the word that Jesus uses. He actually says that she is teaching and seducing my servants. Their hearts are being wooed. Their hearts are being uh, courted. Can you relate to that temptation? You know, in their idol, in their their culture, it may have literally been sexual activity. It may have literally been eating food that they knew was contaminated. But what are the idols of our culture? Boy, they're all over, aren't they? I mean, certainly the sexual behavior, that is uh, true in our current moment as well. An idol could be sexual behavior. It could be literal worship of a false god. But you know, an idol can be anything. An idol is anything that takes the place in your life that God should take. It could be something wicked and harmful, something like a substance that you're abusing, or it could be a good thing, a good thing that has become an ultimate thing, a good thing in your life that you think, I can't go without that. I've got to have this. This is where I find my value and my meaning. And you are willing to sacrifice everything in your life to have it. You see people do this with their careers. Sometimes you say, man, why do they sacrifice like that for their job? They're sacrificing their marriage. They're sacrificing their relationship with their kids. They're sacrificing their health all for that job. Do you you see the sacrifice? They're laying those sacrifices at the altar of the thing that they actually worship. And your career is a good thing. But if your career becomes an ultimate thing, it's become an idol. Um, Money could become an idol. Approval could become an idol. Comfort could become an idol. Sex, marriage, our children, any of these things have the potential of becoming an idol, a good thing becoming an ultimate thing. And the reality is that we are being seduced by so many different options all the time. Just like the church at Thyatira. All kinds of invitations for our hearts to chase after something else. Uh, The author, James K.A. Smith, I love this word picture, but he thinks of the heart as an arrow. And he says, every single day, there is something that is coming along and inviting your heart, the arrow of your heart, to turn away from God, to turn away from being pointed to God, to being pointed towards it. It's this constant wooing, this constant invitation that this is what you really need. And as Jesus looks at the church at Thyatira, he says, watch out. There are people that are, it's not just that that's out there, it's people in your church are actually encouraging it. They're actually teaching you that it's okay. Well, how do we fight it? 
Oh, there's a bunch of ways, I'm sure. But let's, let's try one angle this morning. Uh, there's an author and professor named Alan Noble. And uh, we've had a couple of his books on our book wall over the last few years. Uh, and a few years ago, he posted a tweet on Twitter. And, uh, and this, this is how it read. It'll be on the screen behind me. The church will weather modernity to the extent that it embraces Q&A number one from the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, that might make zero sense to you. And if it does, I totally get it. Uh, maybe you've never heard of anything in that sentence, and it's like, does, is that even English? Um, what, 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 is, what is Alan Noble saying? Well, one of the great resources that has served the people of God for the last about 450 years is this little set of Q&A, questions and answers, that were written in a relatively small town in Germany called Heidelberg about 450 years ago. And it is really good, and it offers a lot to think about. Uh, on occasion, you'll see a Heidelberg question, uh, a catechism question, in our liturgy. It's a beautiful resource that offers rich uh, uh, answers to good questions. But I think it's right to say that its first question is its most famous contribution. And, and author Alan Noble, what, what he is saying is this. He is saying that our culture is pitching us an idea. And the idea that our culture is pitching us is that we are our own. That I own me. That I am the captain of my ship. That I am the king of my life. And Alan Noble has written about this in multiple places. But he says it might be considered the fundamental lie of our modern culture. That we belong only to ourselves. And here's his point. If that's true, if we are our own, then the significance of our lives depends solely on the consequences of our choices. We have to justify our own experiences. We have to justify our own existence. Alan Noble suggests that this is why our expectations for our jobs, for our spouses, for our children, never seem to be fulfilled. You, you, you want your job to fill this void in your life, or you want your spouse to fill this void in your life, or you want your friends or your church to fill this void in your life. And part of what's going on is, is that you have to actually justify your own existence if you've bought into this idea that you're your own, that you own you. It puts us in the seat of control. We're the king of our lives. As I said a moment ago, we are the captain of our own ship. But what if our culture's wrong? What if you're not your own? Well, enter question one from the Heidelberg Catechism. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Now listen to that question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why Alan Noble's tweet that we referenced a second ago, that the church will weather modernity to the extent that it embraces this first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. In other words, in a sense, you could, he's trying to make the case that here's where we're going to win or lose. Do you believe that you own you? Or do you believe that you are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and in death? to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You see, if you are your own, then like seriously, it, it makes sense to do whatever you want, to chase after whatever you want, to use your body to do whatever you want, to sleep with whoever you want, to use your hours however you want, to use your money however you want. It makes perfect sense if you own you because you're the determining factor. So you get to pick. But if you're God's, then when you chase after other gods, you're actually violating this fundamental relationship. You're, you're actually going against this fundamental reality of the fact that you're not yours anymore. That you're actually in a way better place. That you are God's body and soul in life and in death. In other words, you're, you're invincible. You're, you're held by the God of heaven. But it also means that he's the Lord of your life. He calls the shots now. If you're a follower of Jesus, then what he says is, what you, is how you live. He, you align yourself with his good design. The idols of your heart are going to keep seducing you into spiritual adultery. But the invitation now is to actually look to Christ and to trust him in his good design. It's one of the reasons why when the Bible talks about idolatry and refers to it as spiritual adultery, in the New Testament, we see our relationship, the church, be, be uh, illustrated as a, as a bride for Jesus. This is like a marriage now. There, there's intimacy here. There's commitment here. There's covenant here. You're in it for the long haul. No, no matter what, the, the highs and the lows, you, you are Christ's body and soul in life and in death. This wooing, this invitation to chase after other things, boy, it happened to Israel so many times. It's happening in Thyatira. It happens today. It's happening in Sojourn Church. It's happening in your own heart. But if we are God's, then Jesus' call in verse 24 begins to make so much more sense. So let's move through these last pieces of, of Jesus' letter. The call is to hold fast and keep my works to the end. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold fast. Now look, if you're Jezebel and the, and the Jezebel teachers, you need to repent. You, you need to stop promoting the false lies. Stop wooing the people of God to false gods. But if you're one of the people of the church, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold fast and keep my works to the end. Now, this might be shocking to hear, but, but he's inferring this. Obedience to God, so alignment with God's good design, is one of the most significant ways that you get to feel God's love. When you obey God, it is one of the most significant ways that you feel God's love. And this makes all the difference. If you think that the Bible is just full of do's and don'ts, and the whole point of the do's and don'ts is to see who's really committed, to see if you'll really jump through all those hoops to prove something to God. If you think that's all the Bible is offering you, man, you are missing out. What, what the Bible is actually putting in front of you is God's picture for the good life. It's God's design of what is good. And when we walk with him, when we are willing to say no to anything outside his design, anything that's contrary to his design, because we trust him, because we trust that his design is good, then we feel his love in a unique way. And Jesus is saying to this church, if you'll say no to those false offers, if you'll say no to the seduction of the, of the idols that roam around, 
If you'll say no to that, if you'll keep my works to the end, you will receive incredible level of blessing. If you think of obedience as some sort of burden, you are missing what Jesus is inviting you into. He says to this church, hold fast and keep my works to the end. There will be a level of intimacy and knowing of Christ that you won't experience any other way. So obedience, it's not the way I earn God's love. God's love cannot be earned. It's given in Christ. But obedience is one significant way that I experience God's love. Disobedience numbs you. Your heart grows cold. Uh, uh, David said at one point in one of the Psalms, he said, when I had sin in my life that I was not dealing with, my bones wasted away. Your heart grows cold. It dulls your relationship with God. And obedience brings a participation in God that softens us, softens our hearts. Remember how Jesus introduced himself in verse 18 as an authority, as something beautiful? Boy, that, that, that gives us resources here that stand against the magnetic draw of other loves, of other idols. Jesus says, see me for who I am. I'm the son of God with eyes that are like flames. And this, this value, this beautiful bronze I'm, I'm, I'm worth it. I'm, I'm worth it. That's what he's saying. What's the consequence? He says, I will give to each according to their works. Man, this is that the proof is in the pudding. Now, that might seem contrary to grace or something like that. I, I don't think it is. I might not actually want to look at my actions. I might not want to have to stare at my resume I might not have to own what I've done or not done. But Jesus is actually saying, my actions do reveal what's really going on in my heart. The proof's in the pudding. Jesus at one point in time says, what comes out of your mouth, it's just showing what's in your heart. Here he seems to be saying, what you do with your hands, what you do with your feet, what you do with your actions, like it's just, it's just the test. It's just revealing What's going on in your heart? And so on that last day, Jesus is going to give to each according to your works. Because your works are what reveal what's going on in your heart. Where your heart is actually anchored. This is what the book of James puts in front of us so many times. Sinful actions are evidence of spiritual adultery against God. If you're not turning from those things, then Jesus is suggesting that it's revealing your heart's not aligned with him. That there's no allegiance to him. That you've actually walked away from the relationship. That you are worshiping something else. And as you reference in verse 18, he talked about his eyes. He's reminding us, I, I, I can see you. I know you better than you know you. It's an invitation to run back to him. It's not an invitation to just start doing good things. It's an invitation to get our hearts realigned with him, to, to turn from the adultery, to turn from the idolatry, and to come running in faith back to Christ. If we do, what's the promise? He's, there's a few things that he promises here, but I want to focus on the fact that he will give us the morning star. What, what's the morning star? And a better way to say it would be, who is the morning star? Christ is the morning star. We see this imagery in other places in the Bible. That what Jesus is saying is this. If you are the one who conquers, if you are the one who anchors yourself in Christ, you know what you get? 
you get Christ. You get him. You, you get Christ, the true morning, morning star, in all of his glory, richer and deeper and, and, and better than you could have ever imagined. You want Christ? Turn to Christ. You, you, you want Jesus? Turn to him in faith. You don't know what the best thing about the eternal kingdom is going to be? That Jesus is there. You know, sometimes we talk about gold streets and mansions and like, okay, fine, whatever. The best thing about it is that Jesus is there. And Jesus looks at his followers and he says, for those of you who anchor yourself in me, for those of you who orient your heart to me, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get me in fullness better than you could have ever imagined. I will be with you in a way that you've never experienced it before. That's coming. Jesus says, whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear. Now, as we come to the table, there's bread and, and, and juice at this table. And when Jesus introduced this meal, he said, this is my body and this is my blood. And as we come to the table, there is a sense in which we come to partake of Christ. We come to receive Christ. Now, it's partial. It's just a foretaste. This meal is not going to fill you up. But it should offer to you the same kind of idea that Jesus offers to the church at Thyatira. You know what's coming? The best is coming. The best is yet to come. For those who will align their life with Jesus, the best is yet to come. Now, if you've never turned to Christ in faith, there's some prayers in your bulletin. There will be prayers on the screen. We invite you to, 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 to use those to, to talk with God. But if you're here right now and you're realizing that there's an area in your life where you are committing spiritual adultery against Christ, where you've walked away from God's good design, it could be literally sexual immorality, but it could be one of the many other idols of our current moment that woo your heart and call you away from Christ and his goodness to offer you something else. And if you think you're your own, then those make sense. But if you're not your own, if you are God's in, in life and in death, in soul and in body, then it makes all the sense in the world to trust him and to align your life with him. And the good news is this, you can turn from all of that right now. There's going to be a couple minutes of music. You can talk with God about that during that time. There will be a prayer team in the back. You can get, get with someone and pray with them. Uh, if you're working through some of these things, our, uh, that's what our staff is here for. That's what your brothers and sisters in Christ are here for, is to walk through this world, walk through this life, arm in arm, together, helping each other say no to what is harmful and say yes to the beauty and goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If our service will please come uh, forward, if our prayer team will go to the back, uh, let's pray. God, as we get invited over these next minutes to come and take the bread, come and take the cup, God, would you give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ? That this imagery of burnished bronze, that, that, that's, it's better than the brass that Thyatira had to offer. But God, we, we also know that Jesus is, is way better than bronze. That, that what Jesus offers us is what our hearts have been longing for our whole lives. God, I think I can speak for all of us when I admit that our hearts are often tempted, seduced, invited to chase after lesser things. God, would you help us to see that the good life 
is what you've laid out for us, that your path is the way of life. It's, 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 it is what, how we were designed. It's what you long for. And whether we know it or not, it's what our souls long for. God, would you help us, even right now, to turn from the spiritual adultery, to turn from the idols that this culture and our own hearts uh, uh, chase after. Would you help us to trust Jesus more than anything? In whose name we pray, amen. Mm.